Hi, this is Carla from Virginia and the host of There Might Be Cupcakes podcast. And you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is for free. The Blueberry support team is always available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you have got no more excuses. And before I get started into the story, I wanted to warn you that this episode contains events involving homicide, suicide, and gun violence, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Dreamers, I'm going to tell you a story about the American dream. A family of immigrants driven out of Beirut, Lebanon as a result of civil war This is the story of the Iskandarian family. They were determined to stay in Beirut. They had a thriving takeout rotisserie chicken restaurant with recipes that were the guarded secrets of the matriarch of the family that had people flocking to the place. This brought them a great deal of success and wealth, which is why they did not want to abandon their shop despite the war going on around them. They persisted until one day, the eldest son of the family fell victim to the violence. Finding himself caught in the crossfire, he narrowly survived 16 bullet wounds from an AK-47. It was then the family decided that it was time to go. So they came to America. Uncertain of where they would make their mark, what their niche would be, They would ultimately end up deciding that they needed to bring the savory taste of mother's famous Armenian dishes back. And that's where it all started for the Iskandarians here in America. Their business hit the ground running. The place was a hit. Musician Beck mentioned their business in one of his songs. Childish Gambino filmed the music video in the original Hollywood location. The Californians on Saturday Night Live talked about it in one of their skits. Larry David called it Palestinian chicken so good it could end the rift in the Middle East. Man vs. Food called the place a can't miss. So unless you're from Southern California, and unless you are a foodie, then you've probably never heard of the place. And it's likely then you may not have ever heard the story that I'm about to tell you. 
It's a story about family, honor, greed, and betrayal. In today's 55th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Pasha. In Armenian, Pasha means prince. Maderos Eskaderian resided in a beautiful home in the hills overlooking the Southern California community of Glendale. He lived there with his wife Rita, who had been in love with him since just before becoming a teenager. He had immigrated to the United States and began his own business, a chain of rotisserie chicken restaurants that people raved about. His secret? His mother's signature garlic paste. It was all about the garlic paste. That would be the key to the success of Madeiros's empire, an empire he named Zankow Chicken. All of the major food critics raved over the place. He received glowing reviews across Southern California. His customer base was devout. Madeiros was the epitome of the American dream come true for immigrants who arrived here in search of a better life, a better opportunity. And it would eventually become his dream to see Zankel chicken restaurants across the country. But his hopes of seeing that happen were slowly slipping away. Those hopes would have to be left up to his four sons to fulfill. Dick Ran, Steve, Ara, and Bartkeys. At the age of 56, Rodiros was dying of cancer, and with his death imminent, he told them it was going to be theirs to pursue, to make the dreams of Zankals across America come true. The cancer was swift, and it was aggressive, and by the time he woke up one morning and dressed himself in one of his wife's favorite suits that he had hanging in the closet, one that she had not seen him wear in at least two decades, she was amazed, yet taken aback at seeing her husband, all dressed up like that. In that one moment, it felt as if the cancer that was slowly claiming his life had taken a reprieve. But she knew. She knew he was close to being gone. But it was nice to see him up and about, dressed in one of her favorite suits. But Rita was wondering, where could he be going? He hadn't been able to go anywhere on his own for quite some time by then. He hadn't gotten behind the wheel of a car, and she expressed her concerns. She wasn't sure if he was up to going out on his own. But he reassured his wife. He told her he was feeling good that day, and he was just going to head over to Zankel Chicken to catch up with an old friend. Rita didn't think much of it beyond that. But what she didn't know was that he was not going to go see an old friend. He had something else on his mind that he needed to take care of. And what she also wasn't aware of is that her husband left armed. And this would be the last time she would see Medeiros alive ever again. Madero's second eldest son, Steve, was the one of the four that was most similar to their father. 
They seemed to have a strong cerebral connection. They thought and felt very much alike. Steve always seemed in tune with what was going on with Medeiros. But the day he walked out of the house with his handsome suit on, Steve wasn't there. If he had been, he may have had an inkling that something wasn't quite right with his dad. As the cancer had ravaged his father's body, he rarely left home by himself. This would have stood out to Steve. He would have homed in on that with razor focus and been on top of it. He would have told his dad that he was going with him. There's no way he would have let his dad drive around in the physical condition that he was in that day. But Medeiros thought that through. He knew Steve might attempt to stand in his way, and he couldn't let that happen. So before Medeiros got dressed, before he armed himself, he asked his son for a favor. Could he please go to the mall and pick him up a lemonade slushie? It was one of the very few things that Medeiros felt like having anymore. So of course, he did as his father asked. He ran to the mall, picked up the drink as his father requested. But when he arrived back home, drink in hand, Medeiros had already left. Strange. Why would he leave like that? Did Steve take too long? Or was there something else going on that caused his father to leave before he arrived back home? This question would plague Steve forever. It wasn't but a few minutes later Rita came to Steve. She told him that something terrible had happened, that there had been a shooting at his aunt's house, his aunt Zavig. His mind immediately raced to thoughts of his dad. This couldn't be a coincidence, could it? Dad, practically on his deathbed, just happened to leave, and a short time later there's a shooting at Aunt Zavig's. Steve asked his mom where his dad was, and all she said was that he was gone. He pressed for more. What do you mean he's gone? She explained to their second eldest son that his father had said he was going to see an old friend at San Cal Chicken. But now that she's heard that there have been shots at his aunt's house, she realized that he hadn't gone to see anyone at the restaurant. He went there, and something terrible has happened. Let's stop for a moment and talk a little bit about Aunt Zavig. She was Medeiros' sister, younger sister. She did not live that far from her brother's home. A short, albeit winding, seven miles over the Vertigo Hills, still in the city of Glendale. She was married and she had two sons. She was in charge of two of the Zancal chicken locations. And also living with her was their mother, Marguerite. It was her garlic paste recipe that was the gold mine upon which Zancal chicken was built. And not only that, she is the sole architect of nearly every single dish on the menu. If not for Marguerite, there would be no Zancal chicken. And she never stopped working hard at perfecting her creations. 
Steve hurriedly made his way over to his aunt Zalbig's home. He could not get there fast enough. And as soon as he got close enough to see, news choppers were making their rounds above. Squad cars and police officers were there in force. In his aunt's house, surrounded by yellow crime scene tape. He quickly parked and attempted to make his way past the tape, yelling and pleading, No, Dad, no. Of course, he was stopped by an officer who asked him who he was. He told him that he was Steve Escadarian. The officer asked him who he was looking for. Steve explained that he was looking for his dad, Radiros, that he was his son, and he asked the officer if he was inside. He was told yes. Steve asked if his father was dead, and the officer told him yes. He's dead. In a very split-second kind of a moment, Steve had this feeling of relief come over him that his father was no longer in pain due to his cancer. I wondered when I read that if I would have had those same feelings of relief flow through my thoughts if I knew the suffering was over. Maybe. I haven't really dealt with someone's life slowly slipping away from cancer, but I've heard people describe the relief, and I get that. But Mardiros, he did not succumb to cancer. Not that day. Then just as that thought passed through Steve's mind, another quickly followed, and he was pretty sure that he already knew what the answers were going to be. He asked the officer if his aunt and his grandmother were in there too, and were they dead also. The officer shook his head and told him, yes, they are too. The officer had a few questions for Steve, of course, and soon Steve just went home. As he headed back, Steve began to ponder the future of Zankow Chicken. Does it seem strange that that would be at the forefront of his thoughts? I guess it depends on the person. It doesn't really seem to be like that much of an off-the-wall thought. His mind was probably racing faster than he could process. His dad, his aunt, his grandma, gone. They were the epicenter of the business. It was all them. His mom, Rita... She'd never been a part of it. The oldest of the brothers, Dick Gran, was not involved in the family business. He had gone off on his own, a born-again street evangelist. The next brother, Ara, struggled with addiction, and the next brother, Varkis, was only 17 at the time, and he was kind of a pothead, but he still had a good head on his shoulders for the most part. And Steve himself... He had some serious issues of his own. Three years before his father's death, he was actually facing charges of opening fire on a sex worker as well as her pimp. He was looking at the possibility of life in prison. But I will tell you more about Steve's troubled past a little bit later. He then thought about his two cousins, the two sons of his aunt. They could certainly run the business, but Steve was pretty sure that they would not want to work shoulder to shoulder with him, or his brothers for that matter. 
considering what his father had done. To himself, he kept asking, Why? Why, Dad? What have you done? There is this thing called a moat, or a moti. I don't really know how it's pronounced. In Armenian, and it means shame. And there is hardly a thing more shameful in this world than for a son to kill his own mother. For Armenians, for many, many cultures, it's a disgrace. Yes, and it's inexplicable. For Medeiros, he celebrated her as though she was royalty. She was held in high regard as the matriarch of the Iskandarian family. He honored her. So why? How could this story of mother and son have come to such an end as this? An end so violent? We are going to have to take a look back to trace the path of how all of this culminated in this emote. Magritte, for the better part of a quarter century, all the while that they were in the United States building their Zancalchicut empire, she resided in the home with Madeiros, Rita, and their four sons. She was even given the master bedroom of the home. And she always worked. She was always a part of the daily operations at Zancalchicut. She was very hands-on. Every single day, she was a cook. She would arrive home at the same time in the afternoon, and every afternoon, her daughter-in-law would be there to welcome her home. Every single day for 25 years. But one day, after all those years of the same day-in and day-out routine, why would she move out of Madero's home and opt to live in Nazavig's? And then, why did Medeiros ultimately kill his mother, his sister, and then himself? One word, dreamers. Greed. And to understand where this family went, we need to first understand where they came from. So let's go back to the beginnings. Late 1960s, Beirut, Lebanon. That is where Rita was raised. An Armenian child growing up a couple countries over in Lebanon. And it was then she first took notice of Medeiros. He was seven years older than her. He lived across the way from her family. And from her window, she could see into his. And she would often catch herself admiring him from afar. He was hard to miss. He drove a loud car, he was handsome, he easily charmed, and she was absolutely enamored with the older man. And he was a man, and she was still very much a child. He came from a family that spoiled him rotten. They operated the very popular Zancal Chicken restaurant. In an interview with Los Angeles Times Magazine back in 2008, Rita would say of Medeiros, there was no missing him. He always came and went with a big noise, 
His reputation as a playboy was very bad. Arab girls, Maronite Christian girls, Armenian girls, single girls, married girls. For me, he was the most beautiful guy in the world. Nobody was like him. His smile was gorgeous. His hair was gorgeous. He wore the most beautiful perfume. He always dressed in Pierre Cardin or something. And when he would open his mouth, out came the charm. What more did a young girl want? Well, Rita had very, very strict rules to abide by. She was absolutely not allowed to date. And she certainly would not be allowed to date someone so much older than herself. And there was something else about Medeiros that raised some eyebrows. Some years back, there had been a robbery at a local jeweler and a murder. It was big news at the time because the victim was a member of one of the most affluent Arab families in the country. So this was a huge deal. And it was pulled off by a trio of Armenian men who had inside knowledge of the store and the family. Well, one of those perpetrators was an acquaintance of Medeiros, and he had been welcome to stay at his home, and he would come and go freely. So when Medeiros discovered some of the stolen jewelry hidden in his home, he was taken aback to find his good friend was one of the robbers and killers. This made him very nervous, not only to possibly be associated with the crime itself and to possibly get in trouble for it, but that his friend had been living this kind of double life and he had no idea. At least that's what he's maintained. He ended up testifying against his friend as well as his two accomplices at trial and ultimately landing all three of them in prison. Medeiros was well aware that because he testified against them, and was a critical part of them being sentenced to prison, that this meant that they would be seeking vengeance. So, from that day forward, Medeiros always carried two handguns with him at all times. As Rita got older, she grew into quite the stunning young woman. And of course, Medeiros would take notice. The two of them began having secret rendezvous. Her parents just could not know. They fell in love, hoping to keep their clandestine relationship a secret for as long as they could. But there's always that one busybody neighbor that has to ruin everything, right? That's what happened to Rita and Medeiros. A neighbor saw them together and reported them to her mom. It exploded into this raging feud. To Rita's parents, this was immoral and shameful to the family. Eventually, however, they had to relent. They could see that they were not going to be able to keep the young couple apart. And so, in the midst of the 15 and a half years long Lebanese civil war, the two were married. Rita was 19 and Medeiros, 26. They lived above the Zankel chicken that the family operated. It was named after an Armenian river located in what is known as Beirut's Armenian Quarter. It was a two-bedroom place. One room was for the couple, 
and the rest of the place was shared with Medeiros' parents and his sisters, two of them, as well as his maternal grandmother, who, by the way, was a survivor of the Armenian Genocide. Okay, so I want to pause the story here for just a sec because, full disclosure, I was not very familiar with the Armenian Genocide, and I can't even recall ever learning about it in school or in college. So I took a quick look at its background, and I wanted to share a little of what I read in case some of you listening aren't familiar either. So for approximately nine years, spanning 1914 to 1923, though the official start date is recognized to be April 24, 1915, Armenians were targeted by the Ottoman government's methodical annihilation of their people. It's been estimated that nearly 1.5 million Armenians were systematically slaughtered. Most of them were citizens of the Ottoman Empire. However, that number has been disputed. The start date is the day that the Ottoman authorities began arresting and deporting somewhere between 230 to 270 citizens from Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. Their main targets were thinkers, scholars, and leaders. Most of them would ultimately end up being murdered. The Armenian Genocide commenced during World War I and continued for several years after the war ended. There were two significant phases of the genocide. The killing of the able-bodied men through mass killing. Subsequent to that, the women and children and elderly and non-able-bodied citizens were forced into deportation marches into the desert. And as they were being forced to trudge forward by the military, they were often overcome by the deprivation of sustenance, food and water. They were robbed, the women were raped, and sometimes they'd just be massacred. They were burned, drowned, and poisoned to death. And this is what Medeiros' grandmother had survived. And it was because of this genocidal event that the Armenians who had been once indigenous to the area, this is the event that caused their communities to spread and flourish in all parts of the world. Today, the Armenian genocide is considered to be the first of the modern genocides, and it is second only to the Holocaust as the most studied cases of genocide. However, to this day, Turkey denies what took place as a genocide despite being called upon to recognize it as such. As of now, 29 countries officially recognize the mass killing of Armenians from 1914 through 1923 as a genocidal event. Okay, so back to the story. They all lived above their Zankel chicken business. The place wasn't a sit-down style restaurant. There just wasn't any room for that. If you wanted Zankel's famous chicken, you had to pull up along the street, go in, get your food, and remember, Marguerite's famous garlic paste, don't forget that, and you're on your way out. It was very informal. You could barely even label it as a restaurant. For the Los Angeles Magazine article, a friend of the family described it like this. It was a drive through before there were drive throughs The mother would be standing in the mezzanine in her apron, cleaning the garlic cloves and whipping up her paste. The father was a cash machine. All day long, the same movement, his right hand stuffing wads of money into his left shirt pocket and pulling out change. Medeiros was helping turn the chickens when he wasn't having fun. 
Medeiros, by virtue of being the first child, the eldest of the siblings, and the only son. He held an illustrious station within the family dynamic, and that was accepted. Unspoken, unwritten, he would be the heir apparent, and Rita knew the responsibility that came with that for her husband. And she knew how devoutly bound he was to his mother and father, especially his mother. As Rita would say, Before we married, he told me, I am going to live with my parents my whole life. I will never leave my mother. But it was too much. My mother, my mother. She was the queen of the house, not me. Next to God, it was his mother. Medeiros's father was a complicated man. He was intelligent, warm, giving, but struggled with alcoholism, often going missing for days while Medeiros's mother, Marguerite, carried the burden of the family business on her own. And she never stopped. If she needed to, she would carry the workload of four, five, even more people on her own shoulders. And while she labored arduously, she harangued her husband for all he lacked everything that he wasn't, and always made sure that he knew that he was beholden to her for everything. Medeiros was keenly aware of this dynamic, and he spent his entire life worshipping his mother. No matter his own shortcomings, he would never hold anyone in higher esteem than Marguerite. In return, Medeiros was her prince, or as she would call him, her pasha. And for Rita, she faded into the background of the marriage. She was present. She was there. She bore the children. But Marguerite was the centerpiece of their marriage. This was their family, and she was kind of a footnote in the whole thing. Rita would give birth to their first son in Beirut, Dick Ran. She would never have a hand in the Zankow chicken family business. And her role, essentially, was a convention, a norm for women at the time in that place. Her duties were to the children, but also to providing care for Medeiros' elderly grandmother. Remember, I mentioned earlier, she was the genocide survivor. She was the reason the Iskandarians ended up in Beirut, Lebanon. She was one of the ones gathered up from the village where she lived and marched into the deserts of Syria back in 1915. She was one of thousands that headed towards Lebanon. There, they would build a new Armenian community, and they were strong. And with their arrival in the area, it gave the Christian Arab community a small boost over the Muslim Arabs, who, if not for the arrival of the Armenian genocide survivors, would have had control over Lebanon. However, the religious and political tensions would boil over in 1975 as the country would fall into a 15-year-long civil war. Tens of thousands of people were displaced, and more than a million would make mass exodus from Lebanon. But Zankow Chicken was the Iskandarian's cash cow, and they weren't the only business owners whose entire livelihood was ingrained in the Armenian community in Beirut. So they stayed put determined to not let civil war force them out of business and out of the country. The Iskandarians decided to invest the money they made from Zankow Chicken into real estate. 
They purchased properties and rented them out for income. But something happened that led the family to decide that they needed to go. In 1979, while relaxing in front of an empty business storefront, just up the street from Zancal Chicken, Medeiros was caught in the crosshairs of a quarrel between two men. They had driven past him, each one on a motorcycle. Their faces were obscured by masks, and each one of them was holding in their hands an AK-47. They came back around and opened fire, striking Madero 16 times. Being hit with 16 rounds from an AK-47, it's miraculous that he survived, but he did. So the Iskandarians packed it up and headed to America, California specifically, Southern California to be exact. Madero spent a lot of time studying his new surroundings. He would go walking, looking around, taking it all in. He would drive his car around, checking out every city, trying to figure out which was he going to call home. Whatever specifics he was looking for, I can't say for sure, but something about it needed to jive with him. He was looking to establish a business. What kind of a business? Not sure yet. What kind of a location? I don't know. That was the key he was searching for. It had to be just right. And he had time. They had come to America with enough money to sustain the family until they were able to set down roots. But Madero's parents made it quite clear they wanted out of the chicken business. They were getting older, and they needed something that was a little more relaxed, not so fast-paced, not so demanding as Zancal's. They left that behind in Beirut. They wanted to begin anew. The family's first business venture in the United States was a dry cleaning business. But that would be short-lived, as the compounds utilized in the trade caused Madero's to become very ill. And that gave them the idea of possibly operating a men's suit business. Madero's and his father even went to Hong Kong to look into the possibility of getting into the trade, but they quickly realized that it wasn't something that was going to be a sensible business venture for them. So as the family mulled over which direction to go, something was becoming quite evident to Madero's. Southern California was crawling with new immigrants from the Middle East, just like himself and his family, but there were no real restaurants that catered to that demographic. Well, maybe a few. They were few and far between, often expensive, sit-down types of places. Nothing like Zancal Chicken once was in Beirut. That was their thing. Zancal's was fast and reasonably priced. Not to mention Marguerite's recipes were divine. There was nothing in the world like it. The more he thought about it, the more he began to feel that this was going to be their thing. It was back home, and it could be here as well. No, it would be. In 1983, Medeiros ran his plan by his parents, but they remained staunchly opposed. Magritte even fell into tears over the thought of going back into the chicken business. 
She had for decades worked her fingers to the bone. How could she go back to that pace, that level of working? Impossible. His parents even went so far as to say that they would just as soon go back to Beirut before getting wrapped up in the chicken business ever again. But Medeiros wouldn't give up. He was bound and determined. This would be their ticket to the American dream. And soon, his mother and father caved in. There would be Zancal chicken in the United States after all. The location Madeiras found was this rickety old corner mini mall of shops located in Hollywood, right on the corner of Sunset and Normandy, and it is arguably one of the most undesirable corners in the city. But that is where Madeiros saw dollar signs. And the dollars came flying in. When he finally opened the doors to the first Sand Cow Chicken restaurant in America, it didn't take long for those Middle Eastern immigrants that he knew he would be catering to to come swarming in. These were their tastes, the flavors of home they'd been missing. And they were not alone by any stretch. The word slowly spread to the locals as well as those who came to the area for their Monday through Friday 9-to-5s. It took about a year for Medeiros to find his footing. He put everything he had into this business, and it would soon be paying off. There was something special about the way Zancal roasted their chickens. There was an art to it. The right amount of salt rub, the way you moved and rotated each chicken, the temperature that these chickens cooked at were variable. You would go high, then low, then high again. And the result was the kinds of tender, mouth-watering chicken that became the talk of the town. And let's not forget Mom's signature garlic paste. How in the world did she make this spectacular creation? It was unlike anything anyone had ever tasted. But it was a secret a closely guarded family secret. People tried to guess. They probably tried to imitate it. But nothing of the sort would be happening. The only person who could create it would be Medeiros's mother. All of it came of her hands, and her hands alone. And the foodies and critics raved. According to Los Angeles Magazine, the LA Times called it the best roasted chicken in town at any price. Zagat would anoint Zancal's as one of America's best meal deals. And critic Jonathan Gold called the chicken superb. And nothing in heaven or on earth compared to this garlic paste. And before they knew it, the Escadarians were raking in the money hand over fist. They were achieving the American dream. And Medeiros was ready to see Zancal chickens begin opening up other storefronts. He did not want to be limited to just one Hollywood location. They struck gold once. Why not do it again, again, and again? But his mother and father, they weren't exactly on board with that idea either. Remember, they resisted the idea of Zancal chicken in America to begin with. They could not envision any more than what they were already shouldering. But true to Medeiros' form, 
he refused to take no for an answer. He remained steadfast in his vision of what Zankow Chicken had the potential to become. So finally, this time, instead of giving in to the demands of their son, the family came up with a compromise of sorts. Maderos would have the task of bringing Zankow Chicken locations across the Southland. And whatever happened at any new locations he developed, win or lose, those were his to take if they worked or to eat if they flopped. For their part, his parents and his two sisters would have sole proprietorship of the existing, the original, the one that started it all on that rinkadig corner in Hollywood. Medeiros was certain, no matter where he would erect a new location for Van Chicken, success would be certain, so long as he had the magic of his mother's garlic paste in his pocket. And he would. She would continue to make her signature condiment for any and all restaurants. Zankow Chicken would not be Zankow Chicken without it. There would even be a little bonus for his sister Zavig. She would be on his payroll to manage a couple of his new restaurants. To him, it felt like a win for everybody, and everybody seemed to be in agreement. And all would remain the same on the home front. Before long, the patriarch of the family, Medeiros' father, passed away. And Medeiros quickly ascended to that role. It was the natural order of things, being the eldest and only son. But did the family see him in that light? Not sure. By custom, by tradition, perhaps? But they were in modern America. There might be a culture of hierarchy among some families... But it seems like the best way for things like this to be handled in a situation like this is for the parents to lay out the distribution of an asset as they see fit prior to their deaths. Mother and father, in order to avoid legal wranglings, would need to have had likely been given some sort of sound legal advice from a third neutral party. And if father were to precede mother in death, as he did, then the mother would be tasked to make sure things are set the way that she sees fit to ensure that there would be no bickering amongst her children if something were to happen to her. But I don't know if they understood these things or not. Madero seemed to be the one in charge of much of what was going on despite needing to have the approval of his mother and father at every turn. It was his drive and his ambition and his vision that brought Zankow Chicken success in America. Without him... This would have never been, but it cuts both ways. And it is likely that Marguerite could not have known. She could not have possibly seen what was seething beneath the surface between her children. And as Medeiros ascended to his position as patriarch, it seemed like he was keenly aware of how the evil green monster known as greed could be lurking all around them. And he always, always reminded his family that they could never allow themselves to be overcome by this monster. Everything that they had worked so hard for all these years would crumble if they were to find themselves divided by the gluttony of money, power, and success. By then, he had had four sons, and his sister had two, but it was as if he had six all to himself. This is how he saw his nephews, as they lived so close to one another. They went to the same schools. 
They were always together. They were like two extra sons. And Medeiros insisted they must stay grounded. They must stay focused. And they must keep their heads on straight. And there will forever be success for everyone. And their boys were as pampered and spoiled as you can imagine the children of a successful restaurateur would be. But dreamers, you will come to find, like in other stories you've heard about hard-working immigrant parents making a successful go at it in America, raising their children to have the best of the best and everything that they never had, and that often comes back to bite them in the butt. The Menendez brothers immediately come to mind. However, it wouldn't be quite that bad for Medeiros' boys. But they still are an example of too much spoiling, not enough raising them to successfully launch into adulthood. And we will talk about that. So Medeiros' next location would be a place that became a hot spot for Armenian immigrants who came and made Southern California their new home. Glendale. They came from Iran, they came from Beirut like the Iskadarians, and they came from Armenia too. He chose a bit of a nicer corner mini mall to open the second Zantau chicken. When number two began making the kinds of money to pay for itself, and then some, along came number three in Van Nuys. And in short order, number four opened in Anaheim, and five in Pasadena. And the Escadarians, their lives were lavish. They had a beautiful mansion in the Vertigo Hills of Glendale. They drove expensive cars. They acquired live-in help. But don't take that the wrong way. They always worked hard, every one of them. The business they had to maintain required them to be hands-on. Sloughing off the work to anyone else was not an option. At home, of course... Rita was raising their boys, and Medeiros' grandmother was still alive at the time, 97 years old. Rita provided full-time care for her as well. And as for Marguerite, she was up at work every single day preparing the food that would bring the throngs of customers. Day in and day out, like I said, she never stopped. Medeiros' days consisted of traveling across the Southland, from Hollywood to Glendale to Van Nuys to Pasadena to Anaheim, diligently tending to the daily operations of each location to make sure customers were happy and employees were on point with the food and their service. But he wasn't exactly the greatest at being a family man. He spent most of his free time in the company of his group of wealthy friends. They traveled together, mostly to party, Vegas being a favorite destination. Not a whole lot of details to be had as to the extent of Medeiros' extracurricular activities. All that will have to be left up to speculation, I suppose. I get the sense that it was sort of a don't ask, don't tell situation with Rita. He didn't travel with her and the kids. Every once in a while, they would have a token family night, usually dining out, but otherwise... He was off enjoying the fruits of his labor. His way of making up for his shortcomings as a father came in the way of becoming a tremendous donor within the Armenian community. 
But at the end of the day, he was a man satisfied with what he had accomplished. He did what he came to America to do. But then, cancer. Cancer came into Medeiros' body and took a fierce hold. He could feel that something just wasn't right within him. The pain emanated through his lower body, coursing and spreading. When he finally took the time to pay his doctor a visit, the damage was done. He had cancer of the bladder, of the rectum, and eventually of the brain. Chemotherapy wasn't going to be much help, as the cancer was simply too far along. He first told his wife Rita, and then his kids. At the time, Dick Grant was 25, Steve 23, Ara 18, and Vartke's only 17, that he was going to fight for as long as he could, but his time in life was limited. After Medeiros gave the grim prognosis to his wife and boys, it was time for a family meeting. He had his mother, along with his two sisters, join him at his home, as he had an important announcement. He had come to a decision about the fate of Zankal Chicken, when cancer would finally claim his life. It would be his boys that would take the helm of his Zankal Chicken locations, all four of them, one for each. Stunned, a tense, hostile hush fell over the room. The fact that he just told them that he had cancer and it was terminal didn't even seem to faze them. It was the fact that he was turning over the business to his sons. And the reasons this was such a jaw-dropping revelation, I will go on to tell you in just a minute. But it would be the disclosure that broke the family. It wouldn't be a slow, simmering family feud. This break was instantaneous. In a single moment, the vow they made to never divide disintegrated in that room. Perhaps the monster was always there, beneath the surface. Perhaps the ravenousness of desiring control of the family business was brewing. But as long as Medeiros stood as the patriarch of the family, nothing would topple him. Nothing until cancer ultimately would. And naturally, the sisters would be so inclined to feel the natural order of things would see them ascending to the top of the family pecking order. But Medeiros would not have it that way. To him, it was the birthright of his sons to be the ones. That is the way that he saw it. That is the way that he wanted it. His sisters and his own mother were powerless to do anything about it. Marguerite, his mother, she set down her coffee. She looked him in the eye and told him in her native language, Your sons, the shadow they cast is not yours. She walked away and retired to her bedroom. So the shadow they cast is not yours. While acknowledging Medeiros is a good, hard-working man who was the mastermind behind their entire family empire, if not for him, there would be no Zankow chicken. But when it came to his sons, what she said of them was exact. 
they were nothing like their father. I hinted at their troubled lives at the beginning of the story. The eldest, as I mentioned, was born again and preaching on street corners. He had shown absolutely no vested interest in the family business that was all of their livelihood. Which isn't the absolute worst thing in the world he could be doing, but he certainly wasn't spending the last several years preparing for a takeover of his father's and his grandmother's life's work. And besides, before he was born again, his hopes and dreams of one day becoming an attorney crashed and burned in 1997. Dick Ran was an excellent student at Woodbury University, and he had a sight set on going to law school. But for whatever reason, insecurity, self-doubt, whatever, Dick Ran became involved in some intricate plan to somehow cheat on the entrance exam that determines whether or not he would be admitted into law school. And he was caught. And I guess from the sounds of it, that was something that was a criminally punishable offense, as he was made to pay an undisclosed amount in restitution and was given probation. And with that on his record, he would never be accepted to any law school, ever. For the second eldest, Steve, the one I had said earlier was most like his father. He had much different interests than his older brother, Dick Gran. One night, late in 2000, he had solicited the services of a sex worker. They met in a motel in the city of Sherman Oaks, but what he didn't realize is that he was being set up for a robbery. Somewhere on her person or in her handbag, she had a wire on her and her pimp was listening in on the encounter as the two of them were planning to rob Steve of his money and his valuables. And when they pulled this fast one on him, what they hadn't realized is he was armed. And as the two fled from the motel, Steve got into his vehicle and a freeway chase ensued. Steve opened fire on their vehicle, striking their car, but the occupants were uninjured. He was taken into custody and he was being charged with two counts of attempted murder. He was looking at the possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. But Steve would have this incredible stroke of luck during the trial. The prosecutor made kind of a small mistake, but it had big consequences. He brought up to the jury a previous crime Steve had been implicated in. But you see, actually, Steve had nothing to do with it. And you know, Mom and Dad's money hired him, the best attorney that money could buy. And you guys have probably heard his name before. Mark Garagos. And if his name is ringing a bell, but you can't quite put your finger on it, let me refresh your memories. Garagos's first prominent client was Susan McDougall, a former business partner of President Bill Clinton, convicted of charges stemming from the Whitewater scandal. Garagos ended up securing her a presidential pardon in January of 2001. He also won her a not guilty verdict on embezzlement charges in Los Angeles. In 2002, 
Garagos represented actress Winona Ryder when she was charged with shoplifting from a store in Beverly Hills. She was sentenced to three years probation and court-mandated counseling. In 2004, Garagos was attempting to represent both Michael Jackson in his child sex abuse case, as well as Scott Peterson, who was facing the death penalty, charged with murdering his wife, Lacey Rocha, and their unborn son, Connor. You can imagine that the workload for both of those high-profile cases was tremendous, and ultimately, Jackson would replace Garagos as his attorney, and Peterson would go on to be found guilty and sentenced to death, both of those failures on the part of Garagos. In 2009, he represented Chris Brown, who was facing assault charges when he famously attacked Rihanna, and he currently represents singer Kesha. So yeah, this was Steve's attorney. And once he heard the prosecutor bringing up a crime that his client had nothing to do with, he immediately objected. And the damage was done. The judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial in his attempted murder case. Instead of going through all of this again, Garagos managed to broker a deal. Steve would plead guilty to a lesser charge and was ultimately sentenced to one year of work furlough. And that was that. As for Medeiros' two youngest boys, they weren't exactly shining beacons of hope either. Ara, the third eldest, was kind of like the odd one out. He didn't seem to quite mesh with the rest of the family, and he struggled mightily with addiction. And then there was the baby of the family, Vartkes. He might have been the one with the most potential yet, but he was only 17. And it was common knowledge that he would spend most of any money he ever had on marijuana. Today, marijuana use, of course, is legal, but back then it wasn't. And even if it was, he was still underaged. And these were the quartet of ne'er-do-wells who were in line to take the reins of the family's multi-million dollar business. Now does the shock and dismay of Medeiros' mother and sisters at his decision to leave it all to them make sense? Nobody thought that they were capable, not even in the ballpark of capable, of running Zen Cal Chicken to the standards at which they were set. It was impossible. With them running the business, it would be certain doom. It did not take long after the bombshell he dropped on the family for Medeiros to see that his mother simply was not the same towards him. When she would return from the day's work, she would pass him by as though he wasn't even in the room. He was dying. Her son. Her cherished only son. Her Pasha. Was slowly succumbing to the ravages of cancer, yet she shunned him. Never once did she inquire as to his health, his struggles. He lost his hair, nothing. He dropped in weight, a mere shadow of himself, nothing. His health, his life dwindled right before all of their eyes. Still, nothing. And I don't know if this is true or not, but Rita has said that she did not realize that her husband's mom was dismayed at his decision for his sons to run his four Zanko chicken restaurants. But I kind of wonder, 
how could she not really see that? Maybe she didn't want to see it? These were her boys. Despite all of their slip-ups in life, certainly they were prepared to step into their father's shoes once he is gone and take their place as the rightful heirs of the business. It's the natural order of things. This is the way it was meant to be. How could their grandmother not see it? Well, I told you why. To the rest of the family, Medeiros' sons were disappointments. Marguerite worked hard every day of her life, as did her son and her daughters. But her grandchildren? No. The work ethic, the drive, the desire, the ingenuity, it simply wasn't there. Rita didn't understand her mother-in-law's chagrin. She didn't want these four expansion restaurants anyway, so what's the big deal? Remember, she had sole proprietorship of Zancal Number 1. Two through five were Medeiros's. They were his to do with what he pleased, right? I don't think I need to explain what the implications of his decision would mean for the business as a whole. Marguerite, her two daughters, they likely very easily, very suddenly, were able to envision everything that they had worked so hard for be ran into the ground if left into the hands of Medeiros' boys. Their reputation as the premier Middle Eastern rotisserie chicken eatery in Southern California would be obliterated. And as the stalemate between mother and son carried on for an entire year, the two never so much as uttered a single word to one another. Medeiros felt as though he did not deserve to be treated this way by her. After he spent his entire life catering to her, putting her first, above even his own wife, his time was running out, and he was deeply wounded by how his mother had completely shut him out in the manner in which she was. Then, a strange thing happened. You see, in Marguerite's room in Medeiros' house, she had a picture of herself and her son when he was a young boy taken back in Lebanon. He picked it up and removed it from the frame that it was in, and he tore it in half. For more than 50 years, she was hugging him in that photo, and now it was in two pieces. He took a flame to his mother's half of the picture and watched it as it burned to ashes. He took his side of the picture and tossed it into the garbage. And then something truly bizarre happened. One day later, Medeiros' family home erupted into flames. He and Rita were trapped upstairs, flames preventing them from making their way downstairs to safety. They made their way to a balcony where firefighters were able to reach them and bring them down to safety. Medeiros, Rita, and their kids moved into a nearby hotel while the damage was being repaired. Marguerite, though, she took everything with her and went to live with Zavig permanently. When she gathered her belongings, Medeiros saw her. He saw that she was leaving for good. And it was in that moment he knew that the next time he would see his mother, it would be the last. 
Another year passed. Medeiros grew closer to death. Yet still, not a word from his mother to inquire as to his well-being. His sisters and his nephews followed suit, never once reaching out to him, never once expressing concern. Medeiros was dying, and to his family it was as if he was already dead to them. It's been said that Medeiros's mind was beginning to betray him as well. The cancer treatments were leading to a fluid accumulation on his brain. In his mind, he obsessed over that burning picture of his mother. He could not escape the images of watching her burn. And then in a day's time, a fire sweeping through their home, nearly taking their lives. He felt as though it was his mother's vengeance. He burned her, so she would burn him. But then his mind filled with these thoughts. How could a mother repudiate her only son at the most critical time in his life? He had devoted his entire life to her, and here he lay dying, and she renounced him completely. So to him, if a mother has it within herself to do this to her own son, what in the world is she capable of? when he's dead what would she do to the business would they attempt some kind of hostile takeover of the Zankel empire would they be willing to leave his wife and sons out in the cold with nothing if they could do this to him they most certainly were capable of anything and Medeiros came to the conclusion that he needed to do something to ensure that that would never happen In the meantime, Steve stepped in to lend a helping hand for his father. The pain Medeiros was struggling with was nearly unbearable. He was barely able to get out of bed, but he continued to maintain control over his four restaurants, including the two that Zabvig managed. Steve would take his dad there once a week to the two that she ran so he could take care of the books. Inside... Steve was torn apart by the family rift. His love for his grandmother ran deep. And on one of those drives, they had one of those conversations. Steve needed to know if there was a way, before it was too late, for his father to forgive his grandmother. And Medeiros' answer? God will forgive the devil before I can forgive my mother. So come the morning of January 14, 2003, Rita observed as her ailing husband got out of bed. He sent his son Steve on an errand. Fetch him one of those lemonades that he liked so much from the mall. So he did, leaving shortly afterwards. It was one of the few things left that Medeiros could somewhat enjoy drinking. He freshened up, and he put on that suit the one that had been hanging in his closet unworn for at least two decades. Life had been good to Medeiros, and it simply didn't fit anymore. For a long time, he could not fit into it. But it did now, and she admired how striking he still looked in it after all these years. 
In the pocket of his suit, he hid a 38 caliber revolver. And in the waistband of his slacks, he hid a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol, a weapon that had a capacity of 11 rounds. Also in his pocket, 9 more rounds, just in case he needed to reload. He told Rita that he was going to Zancal Chicken to visit an old friend. He said goodbye, walked out the door, and got into his car. He called Zavig. She was at work. He requested to see her and their mother so they could talk about family business. She agreed to come home so they could talk. Now, dreamers, while I was reading up on this story, I wondered what Zavig thought when she heard from her brother out of the blue after so much time had passed. Maybe she thought he was approaching the end of life and perhaps wanted to make amends? I think that would be my first thought. Did she think maybe he reconsidered his decision and was interested in working out another solution to resolve the family divide before he passed away? Maybe they could reach a compromise of some sort. Perhaps he had come to his senses and realized his sons were incapable of taking charge of his business. That to do so would make certain to leave Rita and his boys destitute. That must have been it. I can so easily see Zavig feeling optimistic about this sudden desire on her brother's part to want to speak to her and their mother. Like maybe they could finally bury the hatchet, put this behind them, and most importantly, be there for Medeiros in his final days. She had no idea what she was walking into. Medeiros drove to the other side of the Vertigo Hills where his sister's house sat seven miles from his but it seems as though he had a wardrobe change from the time Rita last saw him to the time that he got to Zavig's front door. He did not have on the fine white silk suit anymore. He had on a brown jacket and some gray slacks. Whatever you all listening want to make of Medeiros's apparent change in outfits is up to you. Maybe he changed out of the suit after he left the house. Perhaps it was a gesture for his wife, knowing that it was one of her favorite things that he ever wore, knowing that he was never going to see her again, and this would be the lasting image of himself he wanted to leave for her. And maybe, knowing what he was about to do, he did not want to soil his wife's favorite suit. Or perhaps Rita is misremembering what she last saw her husband wearing, that her mind just wants to envision him in that suit. And that's the story that she's going to tell. Both versions seem to fit well. And Rita is most certainly free to tell the tale as she sees it. When Medeiros arrived at his sister's house, he was welcomed in by the housekeeper. And Zavig, despite the passage of so much time, with things being so tense between them, she offered him a seat and a lemonade. And according to others that were present in the home that day, the siblings shared some small talk for about 30 minutes, and it was quite agreeable, all things considered. Medeiros was waiting for their mother to get home from work. 
76 years old by this time and still working at the Zancal number one. Marguerite finally arrived home. She set her things down on the dining room table. She greeted her children. The first word she'd spoken to Medeiros in a very long time. Zalveig's live-in housekeeper offered Marguerite some lemonade and then retired to her downstairs quarters to allow the newly reunited family privacy to speak. The following details were outlined and recounted in Los Angeles Magazine as the events unfolded. Madero sat across from Zavig. Marguerite sat to his right. They spoke calmly at first. The conversation went for about five minutes before it suddenly escalated. Medeiros reached for his 9mm stashed in his waistband and brandished his weapon. He reached his arm across the table, took aim directly at his sister's head, and fired one shot. She fell out of the chair, landing face down on the floor. Zavig was dead before she even touched the ground. She was only 45 years old. Turning to his right, his mother was next. She screamed. She made a run for the door as much as a 76-year-old woman possibly could. Medeiros gave chase and got her before she made it to the door and stood in front of her. He raised his weapon and pointed it at his mother. He paused and allowed her to make one last plea for her life. In her native language, she said, don't shoot, please, please don't shoot. He fired one round into her chest. Marguerite stumbled backwards and fell onto the floor facing up. He stood over his mother. They looked at each other in the eye. She raised her right hand towards him and he fired again and again and again, all the way up to eight. Every single bullet aimed right at his mother's heart. She died with her signature apron on. Medeiros took a glance around the room. He saw his nephew looking on from the staircase. He had nothing to say to him as he slowly moved over to the sofa in the living room. He took a seat. He put the gun up to his head and he ended his own life with one bullet into his temple. So years after the day her husband took the lives of his sister, his mother, and then his own, Rita established her own office inside the back room of the Pasadena location. She gazes at her computer where she has a live feed from every Zancow chicken restaurant where she can keep a close eye on each store in the manner in which her husband once had. She watches the outside of the stores. She can see all of the patrons inside, making sure that the employees are doing their jobs to her satisfaction, just like Medeiros had did for all of those years in person. She was now capable of doing it quickly and efficiently from her computer. 
And as close of an eye as she keeps on the stores, she does the same on her boys. She hadn't forgotten how easily it would be for them to slip up in life. The fate of the business continues to ride on her being able to maintain a stronghold on everything. She was now the matriarch, and she wasn't about to let Zankal Chicken die with Madero's Marguerite and Zavig. As she so put it in her interview with LA Magazine, I didn't have time to cry. I had to get out of bed. I buried him, and 15 days later, I was running the business. I was not a working woman. I had no position, no ground, but I know how important this business is. This is what my husband built. I have to be on top of it. I am doing for him, everything for him. It is a shame that a man of his value has left this thing behind because he was a man who gave all his soul. He never said no to anybody. What his mother did to him, I cannot explain. What his sister did to him, I cannot explain. Can jealousy explain this? Foolish pride? It's still a mystery to me. In spite of that, there is a subtle resentment about her husband's actions. Sometimes it tips over towards indignation. What Madero's had done to his family not just her and their sons, but the entire family, and the dishonor that he did to the family name. Rita has said that she regrets allowing this divide to come between herself and her husband and his mother and sister. She wonders if she could have done more to try to get them speaking again. Maybe she could have been the neutral corner to somehow find a way to repair the burned bridges between them. But she really wasn't going to be able to have time moving forward to keep looking back, wondering about all the what-ifs. Rita was going to have more obstacles to overcome, more battles to be fought. You see, Madero's side of the family, they weren't finished yet. The stake in Zanko did not die with the deaths of their patriarch and their matriarch and their sister. Remember, Madero's has one more surviving sister. She has not been mentioned yet in the story. Her name is Hagen. Rita and Hagen, they go way back. Way back to their childhoods in Lebanon. They were the best of friends. Through the civil war that drove them from the country all the way to America, they remain close as ever. When her brother shot and killed their mother, their sister, and then himself, Rita and Hagen, they leaned on each other for comfort. They continued to stand by one another as all this tragedy was raining down on their lives. Their friendship withstood so much in the past, but it would not withstand this. Not for very long. Because, enter into the picture, the attorneys. What civil war could not tear apart, civil litigation would. You see, in Madero's misguided thinking, he thought he was going to be able to solve all of the family's bickering if he eliminated the problem, his mother and his sister, 
who were very much hands-on in the family business. He had nothing to lose, as he himself had one foot in the grave as it was. It was only a matter of time before cancer pushed him all the way in. In taking out the problem, he assumed that the business would be left in the hands of his wife and sons. But what he didn't anticipate was for his sister and his nephews deciding to explore their legal options. Throw some attorneys into the mix, and you've got a full-blown War of the Iskandarians. The mess that Madero's left behind would begin three years before any of this ever happened. In 2000, he failed to renew his trademark on the Zancal name. Rita would claim that she assumed that the rights to the name was theirs when they branched off and signed over Zancal number one to Madero's' mother and father and erected the next four. However, Zavig's sons would have another thing to say about that. They lawyered up and their attorney drafted a letter and sent it to Rita during probate indicating their intent to contest her claims on the rights to the Zancal name. Rita filed a lawsuit over sole rights to it. The battle of the trademark went before a judge in 2006. But it was all for naught. It was a wash. The judge ruled that the rights to the Zancal trademark should be had by both evenly. And not to be outdone, Hagen and one of Zabig's sons turned right around and slapped Rita with the lawsuit right back, a wrongful death lawsuit. They were asking for upwards of tens of millions of dollars in compensation for the deaths of Marguerite and Zabig. But there's this pesky little thing called a statute of limitations. And in California, a wrongful death suit must be filed within two years of the death. And the attorneys they hired dropped the ball and did not file in time. And with that, their lawsuit was tossed out. But Rita never would be at ease that her in-laws were just going to give up and walk away. She was not convinced that they weren't going to do everything in their power to try to win complete control over Zancal. The bitterness, the anger, the resentment, the hurt ran so deep that she was certain that they would stop at nothing to take everything from her. And they were. They continued to get ready for the next battle in court. Not only were they after the trademark, they were after all of the restaurants, and they were after one of the two houses Rita owned. But Rita trudged on, lawsuits flying at her from all directions. She still needed to make sure that Zancal Chicken never lost any of what made it famous. If you would have asked anyone who knew the Iskandarians, never would they have thought that the housewife, mother, and caregiver by design would be the one to step into the shoes of the mastermind behind the business. They would have said you're crazy. There's no way that she could do it. Her boys were probably the most skeptical of all. Even Rita herself was uncertain. But they had to collect themselves. It was either going to be sink or swim. It was in their hands. And they did. Before long, they opened up a couple more locations. And today, there are nine listed on the website. But there are two more run by her in-laws that are not listed. Rita's sons had once floated the idea of bringing in investors or turning Zancow into a franchise. 
But Rita saw nothing good about that idea. Her philosophy was, and she watched it happen again and again, grow too fast and you self-destruct as you sacrifice quality for quantity. And Zancal prides itself on being the best in freshness and quality. It started off as a mom and pop and it remains the same to this day. And yes, the one closest to me is in Anaheim and I do intend to go there sometime in the near future to get a taste of Marguerite's world-famous garlic paste and rotisserie chicken. But today, in spite of the dark backstory of how Zancal chicken came to be, it is still going strong and I cannot wait to try it. So what about the sons? I mentioned their troubled past. How are they going to fare in this new reality? Well, the eldest, Dickran, he seemed to come into his own with it. He stepped up and headed up the marketing strategies of Zancal. He developed all the menus and all the advertising. I actually saw him in a promotional video for Zancal Chicken speaking about the history of the family and the business, and he holds the title as co-founder. The next eldest, Steve, he didn't handle things as well. He was Madero's right-hand man when it came to the business. He knew how to run it better than any of them. Remember, he was the one who, at one time, was facing two attempted murder charges with the prospect of life in prison. He was most like his father. But he also had his father's shortcomings as well, including a penchant for making poor choices and was quickly and easily angered. For example, there was a time when Steve wanted to hire a new manager for one of the stores. She was an individual who had a wealth of experience managing big chains like McDonald's. Rita wasn't sure it would be the right fit for the atmosphere Zancal created for its employees and customers. They weren't a corporation. They're a mom-and-pop shop. That's what the feel of the place was. She did not want to see it turn from something relaxed and welcoming to some sort of fast food machine. Steve felt like Zancal Chicken needed to be more professional, more corporate-esque. And before long, this manager was doing things that just irked Rita. Suddenly, everybody was required to wear a name tag. And she also insisted on hourly sales trackings. It was just too much. This wasn't Rita's way of doing business, and she ended up having to let this manager go. And her management style caused tensions between Steve and his aunt, who was Rita's sister, who, by the way, was 10 years Rita's senior and visually impaired in one eye. She worked at the location where Steve had hired that robo-manager, and his aunt could not stand the woman. And one day... Steve had finally had enough of his aunt's complaining and an altercation ensued between them. Rita would never divulge the details of the confrontation between her son and her sister, but it did turn physical. Steve was promptly fired by his mother, and she told him he could no longer live in the family home either. What Steve did to his aunt, she said, I'm too ashamed to talk about. He is a good boy 
and he's got a big heart. But he has given me no choice. He has to learn to control his temper. His anger, we will not accept. And it was true. Steve did have a big heart. He cared deeply for his friends and family. He gave back to the community in many of the same ways his father once had. Remember his youngest brother, Ara, the one who had battled an addiction to painkillers? Steve managed to help him out of that addiction and turned him around, helped him get into shape. And before long, Ara had a new passion, working out. And Steve had been there for him every step of the way. But Steve was also aware that sometimes his kindness, his big heart, would be something that people would take advantage of or not be able to completely trust, his mom being one of those. His father had a dream of seeing Van Cal chickens across America. The only way to make that happen would be to franchise it out or to court outside investors. He desperately wanted to make that dream a reality, but his mother brushed his ideas aside. And he felt the same way towards her judgment and her vision, that she was the one who can't see what it's going to take to grow Zancal to the next level, stating, She thought the manager I hired was pulling the wool over my eyes, but she doesn't know what it takes to move this business forward. Don't get me wrong. My mother's been awesome. She surprised us all with her work ethic, but she doesn't understand this business the way I understand it. And it's like I said several times, Steve was his dad's right-hand man. And everything he knew, he learned from his father. And if he could be given the chance to be in charge, he would see Zancals popping up across the United States. But his mother was having none of it. Rita simply doesn't want to hear what Steve has to say. And then this thing with his aunt happened, and he's out. As he described it, quote, my aunt was totally provoking me the whole way. They're making it like I beat her up, but I didn't. They're insisting that I hurt her, but I didn't hurt her. I lost my control. I was mad. I slapped her on the hand. It didn't hurt, though. I know it didn't hurt. And then Steve was out of the family business. Was he lost? Maybe. He had some thinking to do. He took some of his personal effects with him and started driving north. He thought about all the mistakes of his past. All those nights, his born-again street-preaching brother would tell him every single night that he was going to hell. He thought about his attempted murder trial and the stroke of luck that, for the most part, got him off. He thought about his father slowly succumbing to cancer and how his grandmother treated him in his final year, ignoring him refusing to speak or acknowledge his existence, even in his darkest hour. Death looming, he thought about his grandmother treating him as though he were dead to her. He thought about that time his dad told him about burning up that picture of his grandmother and how those words he uttered to him, God will forgive the devil before I can forgive my mother. And he thought about the last time he saw his dad how he sent him for that lemonade and never being able to give it to him. 
and the fact remained that he was always going to be known as the son of the chicken mogul who killed his own mother, sister, and self. He knew people talked about him as that son. So he figured maybe the best way to cope with that would be to tell the story himself, rather than it be said in hushed voices behind his back. Just tell the story and own it. He hung around the Fresno area for a few days, drinking, wondering if he could see himself living a life far removed from San Cal. But it wasn't in the cards for him. He cleared up his head and began the trek home. And on his drive, his mind flooded with different thoughts of his past. Like when it was time to open the first brand new Zancow chicken after his father's death, he was in charge of the whole thing. Rita tasked him with setting up the whole place, and he got partway through it. He found the location. All he had to do was get the place built, and it would be all his. But partway through, Steve had a breakdown and fell into a months-long depression. It wasn't until his mother was able to convince him to see a psychiatrist that what was at the core of his depression was uncovered. It was the complicated paradox he found himself in after the day his father murdered his grandmother and aunt. Of the four sons, Steve was the one who had been most closely cut from the same fabric as his father. If not for his final murderous act, Medeiros was a driven, ambitious, innovative man who did indeed cast a long shadow. I really don't think his four sons combined could hold a candle to their father. But for Steve, it seemed to run deeper for him than the other three. He was most like him. No matter what he did in life, despite the very, very serious trouble he had gotten in when he was young, he always wanted to live up to the worthy standards of being his father's son. If nothing else, Steve was fiercely devoted to his family and the family business. And he wanted, he needed to live by his father. He was the heir apparent. But his father's good name was resoundingly obliterated the day he committed the ultimate crime against his own family, his own mother. The shame that now loomed over the legacy his father left behind and by virtue of being the one intended to ascend and pick up where his father left off, it was all too much. How was Steve ever to continue honoring his father in the face of what he'd done? He had to somehow come to reconcile with it. It was forever woven into the narrative of his life. Madero's story, from the beginnings in Beirut, to the killing of Marguerite and Zavig and himself. This was all now Steve's story to tell. When he returned from his sojourn, he needed to visit his father's gravesite. Normally he would go when a thought crossed his mind, and truth be told, it didn't happen that often. But this time, he had something he needed to do. He needed to visit his grandmother's and his aunt's burial sites as well, located in the same cemetery, just not near his father's. And from what I understand, 
The graves could not be further apart within the confines of the property. He had yet to visit their graves. He wasn't even in attendance at their services, which is simply heartbreaking considering how close he and his brothers were to the family. And when he finally had the chance to gaze down upon their headstones, the overwhelming truth came crashing down on him. His father did this. He took the lives of his mother and his sister, an act that he had no right to do, no matter what. Medeiros' life was reaching its end, so he had truly nothing to lose. Did he not think of the consequences that this would leave for his family to wallow in for years and years to come? Could Medeiros not see how much worse he was going to make things as opposed to if he had just died quietly and allowed his family to figure out matters on their own? He was a man whose mind and body had grown weary. Whatever led him to the place to believe that this was the solution can't ever really be understood or justified by Steve or anyone for that matter. His father was a murderer and there just was no getting around that fact. Steve tried to convince himself that his father wasn't in his right mind when he did this. That when he set out that day to head over to Zavig's house, he had no idea what he was doing. The cancer must have blacked out his thinking, and all of this happened because something else was controlling his father's mind and body. And the reason he took his own life is because when he came to, he saw what he had done. He had somehow found himself in Zavig's home, his sister and his mother dead on the floor, and he became overcome with grief. Steve likes to think that Madero sat down, prayed, cried, asked for mercy from God, and then took his own life. But dreamers, I read something interesting. Apparently, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Medeiros swabbed his face, specifically underneath his eyes, on his cheeks, looking for evidence that tears had been shed. This is the first time I'd ever heard this being a part of a post-mortem examination, but I guess it kind of makes sense. I've heard that those who get into the field of forensic pathology do so out of a desire to tell the stories of the dead. And if that isn't something that is apparent to a prospective forensic pathologist early on in medical school, it will soon become that. In these podcasts that we listen to, we talk a great deal about crime and murder, and it seems like that's all they do. But I've read that murders are really the minority of the investigative work that they do. The bulk of the work lies those who have committed suicide or suffered a drug overdose. When you have the family of a murder victim, they knew their loved one didn't ask for this. Someone robbed them of their life. Finding the manner and cause of death, of course, needs to be had, but the family isn't necessarily going to sit there and wonder about the state of mind of their loved one. They were perfectly fine, at least for the most part, when someone ended their life. But the family of those who commit suicide or die from a drug overdose, they might have more questions. 
or they might want to know more things. There's no murder to solve, and part of that just might be if their loved one shed tears. And if that's information the family for some reason wants to know, the pathologist can provide them with that information with a simple swab. So for Steve, how would the narrative have changed for him if he had known his father cried when he realized what he had done prior to sitting down and shooting himself in the head? Would it have made him feel any better to know that his father was overcome with sadness during the course of his final act and cried with regret before ending his own life? It might have been made slightly easier, knowing his father had remorse in the end. But he didn't. There were no remnants of dry tears on Medeiros' cheeks. And going to the cemetery didn't really leave Steve with any answers to the biggest questions that he's had that have persisted over the years. How could his grandmother treat his father so cruelly as she had in his last year of life? And how could his father, a man so filled with pride, pass this legacy onto his sons? Steve went back home. He had something to say to his mother and his brothers. Dad wanted us brothers to love each other and always support each other no matter what. We are different each of us, but we are one. We love each other and we will die for each other. As his sons, we can never let money or outsiders tear us apart. To do less would dishonor dad's memory. Rita welcomed her son back, her prince, her pasha. If you would like to read the story of the Zancal murders, there is a very good article at www.lamag.com. Just search for the Zancal chicken murders, spelled Z-A-N-K-O-U. It is a really good piece that was written in 2008, a little over five years after the killings. And from what I can find online, the business is still being operated on two fronts. Rita and her four boys are in charge of the ones her husband started, and Zavig's son and the surviving sister co-own the original one they inherited from their parents. They have slowly expanded, but they have yet to go beyond the confines of Southern California. Because the judge in Rita's lawsuit found that both sides had rights to the Zancal name, they operate them completely independent of each other doing everything that they can to ensure that the customer finds the exact same quality no matter what Zancal they walk into. For Rita, she spent her entire life building this business with Medeiros. This is hers, and hers alone. But the sons of Zavig, the grandsons of the Creator, all feel it's their birthright. And they hope for the sake of the survival of Zancal Chicken, that someday both sides can bridge the divide and make peace. And that brings this 55th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Come join me on the discussion page on Facebook where we can talk about this and other cases. Like the page and join the group. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod 
and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And if you should so be inclined, if you listen on Apple Podcasts and you like the show, I would love it if you left a review there. Every little bit helps the show grow and become more visible. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the bonus episodes and all of your contributions help with the ongoing cost of producing this show. And for the month of July, we are running a raffle. All current and new patrons will be included in the drawing, which will take place at the beginning of August. So if you can spare a dollar, you can access bonus content, you can get some show swag from me, and you will be entered into the drawing. I can't thank you enough for all of you that have continued to support the show through listening, through Patreon, and through spreading the word on social media. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently approve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 410, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podians. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find the links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and until next time, sweet dreams. It's me, Javier, and I'm back with Pretend Radio. I continue to explore the concept of people pretending to be someone else, like Carl, who comes from a long line of con artists. My, my father told me at a young age, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks, and anything that'll make them money, and that's what you want to sell. But guess who else I have on the show? The FBI agent who busted him. Oh yeah, I also started doing a little digging and found this whole community of parents who are making their kids drink bleach to cure them from their autism. She said that parasites are causing autism and the only way to get rid of autism is to kill the parasites with this solution. So parents are giving it to their children and they're having sores break out on their children's arms. They are having um, bowel lining come out of their children. Also, I talked to a millionaire whose life was destroyed by a con man, but then ended up becoming a con artist herself. Plus, I tell a story I don't like to talk about often. It's my personal encounter with a psychopath. Pretend Radio Season 2 is coming soon. Subscribe to Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts.